Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Paddle Boo Podcast. I am your host, Eric Antonson, and today I'm bringing you something a bit special. For the last few months, I have been working on a new show called the Progression Project Podcast. I have really enjoyed doing the Paddle Boo Podcast, and my enjoyment over the last two years of doing it has moved a little bit from paddle surfing. I'm going to continue to do Paddle Woo. I love it. But I also am thoroughly enjoying conversations about the learning process with world-class performers. And so the Progression Project podcast will be focused on the learning process. And our first episode is with Josh Waitskin, the author of The Art of Learning and the um, subject of the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. His early life, he played chess. He was an eight-time U.S. chess champion. He transitioned from chess to Tai Chi push hands, where he won two world championships and then went on to become a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt uh, in the last bit. He has now taken on the sport of paddle surfing, and I've been coaching him for the last year and a half. And the show that we recorded while about the learning process uh, is also uh, very specialized to paddle surfing as well because we chronicle and our commonality is paddle surfing. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, the new show with the Progression Project. If you like it, please check it out at progressionproject.com, which is where I'm hosting all of the writing and everything about paddle surfing now is also at progressionproject.com. It's just easier to manage one brand than multiple. And uh, if you like it, please subscribe via iTunes. Please give feedback. Let me know what you like and what you don't like. It's a work in progress, as everything that I do is. And um, I appreciate you guys coming along for the ride for this far. It's been an incredibly fun couple years, and I'm excited about where it's headed. So enjoy the episode with Josh Waitskin and the Progression Project podcast. The Progression Project! Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project Podcast. I am your host, Eric Antonson, and today's guest is Josh Waitskin. Before we jump into the conversation with Josh, let me give you a bit of background on my path and where we're headed with the show. I love learning, and specifically diving deep into a passion, and I appreciate depth over breadth. I left the business world a couple years ago to pursue my passions and have spent four years deconstructing the sport of paddle surfing. I produced a film, I host a podcast, and I've journaled about the sport extensively. Through the passion of paddle surfing, I started to study the learning process, coaching, and mastery, and the episodes of the Paddleboo podcast, that's my podcast on paddle surfing, started to move past specific paddle surfing topics and more into the learning process and the mental framework of the top performers. I love having these progression-based conversations, so I decided to start the Progression Project podcast. The Progression Project will be the exploration of the learning process of teaching, of coaching, and parenting, and of living life guided by your passion. We'll talk to world-class athletes like Aaron Pearsall, the three-time Olympic gold medal winner in backstroke. We'll talk to authors like Anders Ericsson, uh, the author of Peak, one of my favorite books on mastery and the role of deliberate practice. It's actually required reading uh, before you train with me. And top-tier performers like Garrett Dutton, aka G-Love of G-Love and the Special Sauce. He's one of the best modern-day blues musicians, and he's maintained a 25-year career in the music industry. And while the guests will vary in discipline and approach, the lessons, focus, and dedication are universal. You can't help but be inspired when you listen to someone like Josh. And I use these conversations as fuel to do better and to be better, and I hope they do the same for you. 
All right, let's dive in with Josh Waitskin. Josh is best known for his career in chess. He's the eight-time national chess champion. He transitioned to Tai Chi push hands after chess and won two world championships, and then to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, where he earned a black belt under Marcelo Garcia. He and Marcelo have a gym in Manhattan to this day, and you can study with Marcelo online at mginaction.com. I'm a huge fan of Josh, and I am honored to call him a close friend. Uh, if after this episode you'd like to learn more about him, I highly recommend reading his book, The Art of Learning. It is the other book that is required reading before training with me. And I recommend checking out his two episodes on the Tim Ferriss podcast. I am a huge fan of Tim Ferriss. He is an incredible human being. I've gotten to spend some time with him. Can't say enough good things about Tim. And the episodes with Josh are incredible. So check those out. All right, guys. Let's dive in with Josh Waitskin. All right, Josh, thank you very much for being the first guest on the Progression Project podcast. It's an honor, brother. I'm psyched to be here. We've been talking about getting you on a podcast with me. I do the Paddlewood podcast as well, but for the last almost year now, about eight or nine months. And so I've thought about this conversation for a long time. Um, and the funny part about it is, is that I've always thought about this conversation through the frame of what you're best known for, which is, you know, your book, The Art of Learning, your process of learning chess and then Chinese martial arts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. But now having gotten to know you for the last, I don't know, 16 months or so and surf with you, I'm, I coach you in paddle surfing. And now we just surf together because you're at that level. Uh, what stands out, what's jumped out over the last year is your passion in the way that you approach these endeavors. So I want to start on passion because this is my passion project and uh, watching you experience paddle surfing and the passion that you bring to it, uh, I thought that would be a great place to start. So first question on the pa uh, Progression Project podcast is, explain to me, uh, tell me the role of passion in your life. Uh, and how you find it, how you cultivate it. It's just an immense amount of energy there. That's beautiful, man. I mean, I, you know, it's a great question for us to jump into because you're one of the few people I've run into Earth who's as crazy, energized, stoked, passionate about what he does as I tend to feel. And um, I think that's a big part of our, of our connection. And it's been an incredible part of being coached by you. Um, because we share that, that wavelength. So, I mean, for me, the love has been at the core of everything I've done. When I, when I started playing chess, it felt from the beginning, I was six years old, I walked through Washington Square Park in, in downtown Manhattan. I remember seeing the, the, the chess pieces for the first time. It felt like some old memory. And from the beginning, it was self-expression. It was love. And when I... And everything I've done when I've been flying in my learning process and my performance psychology and my competitive energy, it's been a form of self-expression, love. And when I've been obstructed, it's been trying to fit into a mold that wasn't right for me. It's been kind of externalized, thinking about other people's expectations. And so I've, you know, I've had lots of reps at different things I've done at oscillating between just the love and something more externalized. And at this point, what's happened, I think, from training myself over the years to just be true to myself because I've seen how that works best. I have this allergy to doing anything but that. 
and and that's a big part of of, of who I am. Um, whether it's hanging out with people who I don't love, who I don't feel connected to the energy of, or doing something that, that I that I don't love, or doing something in a way that I don't love, um, it, it it creates this sort of internal response that just is yelling at me that, that is misaligned. And so it, it's passion, it's love, it's a sense of alignment. And when I think about it relative to myself or other people who I might be working with, it's doing what I love and doing whatever I'm doing in a way that I love. And that second part's really important for me as well because I find that you can do almost anything um, and find your passion for it as long as you're doing it in a way that's connected to, to who you are as a learner. And that's a big part of, of, um, of how I approach everything is, is understanding who I am as a learner and a, approaching everything I do in a way that's tapped into it. So when you approach a new skill like when you moved from chess to Chinese martial arts from Chinese martial arts to Brazilian jiu-jitsu and now into paddle surfing how do you decide what your next endeavor is going to be because when you when you just when you dedicate yourself to something it's a decade is what it looks like yeah. it is a long process on the way to becoming you know close the best in the world at what you're doing uh, which is what you've done repeatedly is there a strategic component to how you decide or do you just let your heart guide you where you're going i think the heart guiding me is a huge part of it um so let's talk about the the transitions themselves so when i when i moved from chess into into the chinese martial arts there was this was this was soul search i had at the end of my chess career i had so I played chess from 6 to 23, so it was 17 years. Um, the last couple years, I had been pulled into this relatively externalized relationship of the game. My results were still really good, but I was, I was trying to... I, I had had a coach for a number of years who had urged me to play in a style that was the opposite from who I was. Um, and I had a huge amount of external scrutiny on me from when I was 15 on from the film Searching for Bobby Fischer coming out. And... and um, and so my teenage years and then to my early 20s, my relationship became, became much more complicated. And, um, and it wasn't just a free self-expression. It was sort of, you know, I, I talk about the pre-consciousness versus the post-consciousness competitor. I think it was during those years that I made this journey from, from that unobstructed pre-consciousness, just innocence in my, in my, in my play to a more complicated um, kind of locked up state where I was, my worldview had gained much more complexity, but I hadn't moved through it and been able to integrate that complexity back into a liberated sense of self-expression. Um, and, and so I was, I was really locked up. I was obstructed. And, and I wasn't in touch with my love for the game. And I had become somewhat externalized. I was thinking about the results. I was thinking about how I looked from the outside. And so I moved into East a, a study of East Asian philosophy, into meditation, um, and ultimately, ultimately into the Chinese martial arts as a form of, of soul search. Um, and then initially it was philosophical. It was a study of Taoism, of Buddhism, of of Vedanta of East Asian philosophy as a way of understanding the world and understanding myself and then as I became increasingly devoted to meditation and I, I was reaching these states of, of tranquility and of um, what felt like insight and connection to the world in this kind of flower garden of, of peace away from competition then I you know it's my style it's my nature to increase the heat on that so then I started fighting in the martial arts while trying to maintain that, st that state of internal equilibrium. Um, so I was sort of, and anyone can meditate in a flower garden, but then having that kind of state of mind when someone's trying to tear your head off is a very different situation. So uh, it was really about my own growth. Um, and then 
when I transitioned from from Tai Chi Chuan to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, again it was it felt like the thing that was necessary for my growth. It was after I won the 2004 World Championships, I wanted to start over. I wanted to have a uh, put a white belt on, um, metaphor metaphorically and literally, and. Um, I was training, you know, all those years competing in stand-up martial arts and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was, I was like, you know, I cross-trained a little bit in it and it was like a fish out of water. I'd throw someone on the floor and they would just like heel hook me and I would, had no idea what I was doing. So it was a whole new realm of the martial arts, um, incredibly complex technically and it was also something that was a huge weakness. And I also, frankly, in that transition became, there was, if I'm really opening up, there was a moment in the 2004 Worlds where I was untrue to myself on a moral level in the finals of my Moving Step um, Pushan's um, match. I exploded through this guy's elbow um, and broke his arm in a moment that I, you know, my, my relationship with the martial arts is really about self-cultivation and, and I'm a fundamentally nonviolent person, philosophically. Um, but in that moment, I was amoral. I, it was complete insanity. Um, it was after, like, you know, the last minutes of a epic two-day event after insane, you know, training camp, and I was my body was all busted up. And I, um, after the event, I, I I was really uncomfortable with the fact that I had reached this this state of amorality as as a fighter. That's not why I'd gotten into the the martial arts, and I I felt like I needed to get my ass kicked for a while. <laughs> and so it was kind of a combination of, of taking on the next big challenge and feeling like I needed some kind of cleanse. And so I strapped on a white belt and, um, <coughs> and took on a whole new art. And, um, and in my recent years, you know, it's a combination of factors. For one thing, in, you know, I, I love Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I devoted, a, you know, um, I really trained in it for, I started training it in 2002 um, so I've been, I guess it's been 14 years or so. 2004 is when I started being all in on jujitsu and not doing any stand-up. Um, but then a few years ago, I ruptured my L4, L5 disc, had a really bad back injury. And so I was training through it a lot. Um, I just turned 40 years old. And so on, on some level, there was, the f- there, was, there was trying to save myself before I ran off a cliff, which I tend to do. You know, I don't tend to, <laughs> as you know, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've experienced work on, this. <laughs> work on this in my surfing as well. But I, <laughs> we're going to talk about that. But but also, it felt you know for me, you know, I, I've always loved the ocean, and there's something about this. Tra- I'm making this transition in my life now from being primarily a fighter, a competitor, to being a nurturer, and um, of my children. And in my professionally, I work. You know, I, I train elite mental competitors. And some physical competitors and their their learning process, their performance psychology, their creativity, and receptivity feels to me like a core art that will be a big part of my my spiritual focus over the next decades, and and that's a big part of how I relate to surfing is receiving, just opening up my pores to what the ocean is presenting, and um, tapping into it. Now there's a huge amount of technical material I have to integrate, <laughs> which you're helping me with before I get there, but. But it feels like the next step for me as a human being um, in, my, in my growth, as well as it's the most beautiful art I've ever connected with. I mean, I've never felt more love for an art than I, than I feel right now for paddle surfing. And um, I mean, a lot of that, frankly, relates to, to you. I remember when I first met you, it was a couple of years ago, I was, I, was, I, was, I was taking a lesson, like my first time out paddle surfing, and I was out there on this big board and off Guionis, and I, I looked over, and here was this like, crazy blonde dude on a board that he was up to his knees in the water, and I'd never, I had no, no idea what bottom racing was. Like, what the hell is that guy doing? 
And then we met and he started talking at a restaurant after that. And I it was just, that. you've inspired me to like open up my mind to this whole other realm. And I, I'm so in love with it, dude. I'm so excited about it. And this has been a breakthrough couple weeks. I've just been down with Eric um, surfing for two weeks straight. We've had a lot of four-day surges where I jumped down to New York when there was a swell and surfed with him. For, but this has been two weeks straight. And it's been awesome. Lots of um, breakthroughs. Okay. Yeah. We're going to jump ahead a little bit, but let's talk about those breakthroughs since you brought that up. So you're, we've been last November was when you got serious about this and we started working together. And I guess it's been a number of trips, five, five trips, six trips now since then. And about six months ago, your growth, you plateaued there about six months ago. And while your skill set in paddling in bottom racing continued to grow, your wave riding didn't change too much until Monday night. And so I want to talk to you about that moment Monday night. So Monday night, we were surfing a break, which I won't name, but up the way a little bit. And we had what happened to be what we call a sneaker north, which is in our area of the coast. No one really knows that we get these north swells. And so you have to be very attuned to the weather. But if you see this north coming and you, you can see it on certain models, there's a possibility that you're going to have absolutely epic surf and that no one's going to know about it. And so you get to score these just insanely beautiful set. You, you wait all year for them, you get a few a year. And we happen to have one on Monday night. And what makes those swells special is that they move fast. And I mean, without getting too technical about surfing, they're a heavier, more critical swell. And what stands out about that session to me is that everything that you had been working on for about six months seemed to come together in the moment that you needed it. And you've written about earthquakes in your writing and how sometimes you can, you can um, bring out training through situations. That was a pretty incredible example of watching in two hours of surfing, six months of work come together, and then it all stick for the last week. I mean, it was this week one, week two, Monday night, massive changes that all happened right then. Talk to me about that moment and how you see that from your perspective of growth, learning, uh, breakthroughs in your framework. It's funny. You talk about passion. Like I, I, that was the most awesome two hours of my life. <laughs> I honestly don't know if I, I mean, I can think about like other than, I mean, like the birth of my boys. Uh, but I have to tell you, I, that was the most incredible two hours of my life. My, my hands are sweating right now thinking about it. It was so electrifying. You were one of the most fired up human beings I've ever seen <laughs> in my life as we were getting out of the water. Like skipping, jumping. It was, it was so beautiful. I was so stoked to have been a part of it. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't just the waves. It was the, the, uh, just the, the coalescence of all of the work that you had done. But how did that happen? Like, why did that all come together in the moment that you needed it? Well, let me, so let's step back and let's talk about like the broader learning theme that you're bringing up. And then let's talk about that session Perfect. and talk about relative to paddle surfing, which probably you will have a lot more insights about than I am because I'm just a total beginner working, working out the first steps here, right? So, I mean, I do believe that in the learning process, there, are, there is that, that oscillation. And it's a lot, you know, like that, you know, if you've studied chemistry that, that you know, potential energy kinetic energy chart where you like the buildup of potential energy before there's an explosion into kinetic energy right and you see this all the time in the learning process in the creative process well, even if you're talking about idea generation like studying complexity you're stuck you're stuck you're stuck you sleep on it then you wake up and you have this huge insight 
right? And I've constructed, you know, my creative process and the rhythms that I work with as or around around that that in like microbursts, right? In terms of how I structure my day, everything. But in the learning process, it, it's interesting because you you. I mean, I remember this in my chess career. I remember this in in the martial arts. I mean, there's always periods of what looks like a plateau, but you're just building up that potential energy, right? Because you're assimilating complexity into your, you know, you're transitioning a lot of material from the conscious and the unconscious mind, and then suddenly it it, it all connects, and then you have these explosions. Um, so that's a rhythm that I'm pretty comfortable with, and and of course, then you're bringing in, into paddle surfing, where so during this this last period of time, I'm living in New York. I'm trying to get as much water time as I possibly can. I have August, I get, I don't have great waves, but I'm, I'm on, um, up in Massachusetts and I'm in the water for 30 days straight, which is amazing without great waves, but that's why I'm doing a lot of bottom racing. Right. And I'm, I mean, every wave seems awesome to me and I'm doing my best. Um, so I was doing a lot of work on getting used to smaller boards. Um, they didn't have a lot of waves and I had some great sessions, but I didn't have consistent wave action until I came down here. Um, and then we had that session where everything, it was kind of lined up for my personality as well, I think, because it was just this awesome, it was beautiful, you know, sneaker north, which you called, by the way, two weeks before, another, another forecast called it even the day before, you called it to me on the phone two weeks before, which I thought was pretty awesome. Um, and the day of, the weather reports were saying there was nothing, but it was insane. It's it was two just, to three feet and it was, yeah, it was six like to eight feet. Six beautiful, I mean, beautiful barrels and yeah. first, first couple barrels of my, of my life. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was also, it wasn't a terribly technical day of surfing, right? Because I wasn't, it wasn't a lot of turning. It was, it was timing the entry right, getting into the barrels, um, sticking with them, right? Reading the lines of the wave. And it was, it was a way for, so it was, you know, it brings up this theme of, of, of which you and I have talked about a lot, of, of sort of reducing complexity to focus on core parts of the game, right? I think that, that was a situation where the conditions were, were relatively extreme for me, but they also had somewhat reduced complexity around what I had to do. And I, I do love the storm, and so it sort of fit my personality a little bit. But what was interesting is that, is that then after riding those waves, everything else um, that we did over the past week like this just seemed, I, the water looked different to me. Um, I saw different lines in the waves. The waves looked much smaller to me. Waves that would have looked big to me looked, looked small. You reset your barometer of challenge right. in the water. And everything was slower then. It's like that yeah. theme of time slowing down, which yeah. I think is so, so fun, right? You, um, you, pushed, you expanded your growth edge in a, in a large way for conditions, right? for speed. And, right. It's a fascinating yeah. thing, right? How, how we... I think it also, I also think that if we're, if we're reflecting on this theme of self-expression, the conditions in a way allowed me to do what I'm best at as a competitor, as a performer, separate from my level as a surfer. It sort of allowed me to surf in a way that was true to me. Um, and then after I'd done that, then I sort of connected to, to surfing in, in a way that was, that was much more like self-expression. That's an interesting part of what might have happened there. Because it was reduced complexity, I wasn't working on, on complex technical turns that I hadn't integrated yet. Well, you say it was reduced complexity, but everything was much ha happening at a much faster rate with much more consequence. Right. Everything was much more important that you got things right. I mean, you took some heavy wipeouts that night. You hit the bottom <laughs> a few times, if I remember correctly, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, which is incredible. But yeah, you but realized you could deal with that, and then you moneyed the next one. But it was, but it was, um, if you think about, for example, if you're studying chess, if you, if you start working with somebody on the end game, right? Initially, if they're beginning like king and pawn against king, but then if you're, if they're higher level, you can, you can work with them on some relatively complex end games, but, 
the mathematical complexity of the position might be reduced compared to a middle game. And so it's a hard position, but it allows them to tap high-level principles because the position is relatively, the complexity is somewhat reduced. Um, at least the complexity they're able to handle. And so for me, that would help like, reduce complexity because it kind of fit my personality. And it allowed me to focus in on the essentials, right? This is a theme we've talked about a lot around bottom racing, yeah. for example. And I think it's a really interesting theme in, in, the, in, in, um, in, in paddle surf training. When bottom racing is awesome for the learning curve. And, and when should one level off and ride a board which is small but stable enough to allow them for it to somewhat reduce complexity so they can focus on... Let's, let's define that term real quick for anyone who isn't familiar with paddle, paddle surfing in the bottom race. Bottom racing is when you are working outside of your comfort zone on the float of the board that you're riding, on the volume of the board that you're riding. And so the idea is that pretty much anyone can paddle on a massive paddleboard. But as the board gets smaller, balance, everything becomes more difficult. And being able to do maneuvers on a paddleboard has a lot to do with how small the board is because on big boards you just cannot do anything critical on small boards you can do a whole lot but then it's very difficult to stand up so there's a balance which we've been working on for the last year of finding the spot where you're able to paddle and still uh, be maneuverable and, and surf at a high performance level and so Josh at times thinks that I push him a little bit too far, maybe to the point of hazing, <laughs> as he said to me, but I know that he can do it. And it's just a matter of spending enough time out of your comfort zone and it becomes your comfort zone. And so there's this balance there. How much do you want to suffer in the process to get where you need to go? Uh, and does that hold you back in learning other skills that are also important? Um, and so why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because you've been pretty critical about certain aspects of this in a good way, in a positive way. We've had some great conversations about this, but I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a, a conversation that we can expand out to other areas of life. Um, and so it's pertinent to anyone who would be listening, right? It's a really interesting topic because it's sort of a collision of different learning principles, right? And so we disentangle them and we think about them um, somewhat separately. And then we sort of re-entangle them and see where they collide. It's, it's interesting, right? So, so first of all, there's the, there's the principle of, like in chess, endgame before opening, right? So reducing the complexity as much as possible. Studying king and pawn against king, um, which is about as reduced complexity as possible mathematically in order to internalize certain high-level principles, which could, be, which you could also think about as body mechanics and, for example, a physical sport. And then you can translate those internalized principles or body mechanics into positions of increased complexity. Right, so that would be a principle. Would say like you want you want to if you're riding a board which is, um, which is like 130 liters, 120 liters, 115 liters, right? Then versus like 95 liters or 100 liters, right? You can you can focus on on reading the wave, right? Or on things that that if you're just fully focused on balancing, you you. You can't, right? Then there's also being the, the principle of, which is, a, which is a really important principle, of using boards that force you to have good technique, right? Which is a very powerful point that you make, right? Because if you're riding big boards, you can be sloppy. If you're riding smaller boards, you have to have good technique or else you're going to fall off, right? right? And I, so I think as a teacher, then you need to understand who the student is relative to how much they'll, they'll get comfortable in, in like, they'll, like they'll take advantage of areas where they can slack, 
right? Or have good technique. Then there's, of course, the dynamics in surfing of you don't want big boards out in the lineup all the time because you'll destroy the lineups, sure. which is a huge point. And this would correlate to martial arts, I guess, in which, and I am by no means a martial artist, but in like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I assume like if a, a, you know, equal level students are rolling together and then there are, there are weaknesses that will not get exploited, but then when you jump up right. to roll against a black belt, you can't get away with the same stuff. The same thing is, is paddle surfing where I can spot someone, the holes in someone's game very quickly if they try to ride a board that's... Uh, pushes them on the volume curve. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. Like in, in, I think that, I mean, my own intuition here is that there's some, th- that the path should be different for everybody depending on what someone's personality is like, what their biases are, what their past is. Um, but also there's a healthy oscillation between the two. So I think that having periods where one is, for example, on flat water doing a lot of, bo- of bottom race work, where they're just getting used to smaller and smaller and smaller boards. And then when they're in waves, maybe adding five or 10 liters, my hunch is, so they can then focus learning how to read the water if they've never surfed before, right? right? Like I'd never um, surfed or skateboarded or snowboarded or I haven't spent, hadn't spent time in my life in surf stance. Um, and I hadn't, um, re- I'd lo- I've spent my life on the water, but I haven't read waves as a surfer before. And it's, it's really interesting to separate these things and zone in on each one if we're trying to think about how to maximize the learning curve of an individual as, as a paddle surfer, I would think that, that focusing on each one of these skills in, in sort of a, like a siloed way and then putting them together is ideal. So, for example, for me, I think when I'm living in New York, I should be doing tons of bottom racing on, in like, you know, off like Long Island. Yeah, in one foot bad condition. Right. Right. Smaller and smaller and smaller yep. boards. Then when I come into Costa Rica, I should jump up a few, some like 10 liters and focus on reading the waves, right? Focus on turns. But I have to be surfing a board that forces me to have good techniques um, in the waves, right? So I think, it's, I think it's also ways of, like, it would be awesome to have really specific training on just reading waves, reading the entry point on waves. Right, so if I were to be taking, like, when you're, when you're working with, with martial artists, usually people come in and they want to learn really fancy stuff first. They want to learn everything. They want to learn all the stuff they've seen in the UFC or Sunan Munjals and, you know, or in the Chinese martial arts that they've seen, um, you know, in you know, kung fu movies, right? As opposed to working on the most foundational skills first. So I think that as a, as a teacher, I think it's one thing that you're, you're, you're really awesome at. I mean, I've watched you work with groups and observe the group for a long time and note how each person is. Like my buddy Dan has been surfing with us a lot. You know, Dan Caulfield, who I, I love. He's a, like a brother of mine. He and I took on um, Chinese martial arts together. We took on jiu-jitsu together. Now we're taking on paddle surfing together. And Dan and I are kind of opposites around learning. Yeah. And I've watched you train us so differently. Um, so your ability to observe as a trainer, I think, is one of your, your greatest strengths. And you, you've been a beautiful coach for me in that you've kind of rolled with my idiosyncratic, crazy way of approaching the learning process. Um, and we've had constant dialogue about these principles, which has been lots of fun. And you've been, you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> There's this process where <laughs> I, I get asked a question and I give my opinion. And then usually Josh will do the opposite. And then about a month or two later, hey, Eric, <laughs> you were right about that. That's the other side of the self-expression point. Yeah, but it's good. I mean, you're getting there through your, through your own processes. Um, yeah, I think, I think that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing is that I've in my, in my life as a learner, I've had the biggest crisis that I had in my life, in my life period, was when I allowed a, a coach in my chess career 
to push me away from my compass. And I think that that's led, that that experience has been one of the greatest experiences of my life because it's taught me about self-expression and trusting my intuition. But sometimes in it, when I'm taking on a sport, like there's this chess principle that, my, that, that um, like if, if your opponent lays a trap for you, if you're an up and coming chess player, if, you, if, if your opponent say hangs a pawn or hangs a piece and you're a young chess player and you're trying to, to you feel like there's a trap there, but you look for it. If you can't, if you can't, like if you spend 20 minutes and, you're, and it looks like you should take the pawn, you have to take the pawn because if you don't trust yourself, if you're trusting your opponents over yourself, then you're lost. You're in their hands. And so that's something that's kind of part of my personality. I think it's a core strength and sometimes maybe a little bit of a weakness in that, if, in that I, I do like, it has to feel internally aligned for me. Right. Um, and it's been really interesting taking on th- this art through that lens because there's been like a couple boards I've, I've, I've called you on like, Eric, dude, I, I'm going to order this board. What do you think? You're like, Josh, you're gonna, in, ten, in a week, you're, gonna, you're not going to want it anymore. And I've ordered it and he's been a week later. I, it felt too big. But through that lens, I understand those decisions now because if you didn't do it, then you might wonder, well, should I have, should yeah. I have ordered that board? Yeah. So, so it makes sense th- through that lens. Um, let's talk about, I love the book Peak. I'm a big fan of Anders Ericsson's work. Um, and where I have spent a lot of time in the last, I don't know, six, eight months, really thinking about skill development. And this is with my kids as well. And I want to jump into some of the parenting conversation here in, in a bit, but um, the idea of mental representations and the idea of, and I, I did talk with An- uh, Anders and that episode will come out after this one. So that, that one, and, but one of the conversations that we had is I don't, I don't know if I felt that his book went far enough in defining mental representations. I believe that there are different types I think that there's a difference in a representation of a skill versus a decision representation. And when I look at this through the framework of surfing, a skill would be how to pop up. Something that is highly replicable. You can go practice it in a pool. You can practice it wherever you want. You can, you can follow uh, the best guys in the world. You can look at exactly how they do it. And it's, it's a non-dynamic skill maneuver versus... Uh, the decision-making representations, which are reading waves, knowing what maneuver to do. And I think that they're a little bit separate. I think that you need to define them differently because I don't know if they work the same. So in your mind, how do you see those different representations for learning skills? And, And maybe I should define representations here. The idea is that there is a, uh, a, uh, a visualization, something that you can that you can form in your mind that you can replicate. So, say, think about tennis and a forehand of tennis, and you want to do Andre Agassi's forehand. That could be your mental representation for a tennis forehand until you replace it through work, and you're able to do your own forehand, and then it becomes a merged Andre Agassi, Eric Antonson forehand. And then at some point, when I get really good, it's my forehand, and then maybe I can have my own representations about how that is. That's a long convoluted thing. I, I apologize, but I feel like if you haven't read the book Peak, you need to understand what a mental representation is. Um, so can you talk about mental representations and how you see them for skills versus uh, decision-making representations? And am I looking at that wrong? Am I missing something here? This is outside of, out, of my, uh, out of my realm, but when I, when I think about this, I'm, I'm a little bit, I don't think they're the same thing. 
I don't think you're looking at it wrong. I think you're looking at it in a way that, that makes sense to you. I mean, you're a world-class learner. And so that, like that, that way of mapping learning fits your, that, that's your mental models. I mean, for me, I'm always, of, I'm always working on, on kind of mapping things thematically. Right, and so I think it's it, like I have a, a non-local habit creation map that I created a long time ago with all of my <laughs> my like core habits, um, technical dynamics, um, and then themes, and then meta themes. And a, a big way that I approach learning is to understand which techniques are housed under which principles, which are housed under which meta themes. And I train at technique to internalize principle to internalize meta theme. And ultimately, the essence of, of my training is that if I understand that I can work on these three manifestations of a broader theme while visualizing the theme, ultimately I'll burn in the theme and the hundreds or thousands of techniques that are manifestations of that theme will just become part of me. Right. And it's a big way that I amplify my growth curve. Right. And so like I have my own way of sort of mapping technique and principle. Um, and then meta principle. Can you give an example of that so that I can understand I, I think I understand where you're coming from, but I'd like to understand what you could drill on to internalize a certain theme. Yeah, I mean, I could give hundreds of examples, but like for well, you and I have had a lot of fun talking about rain, right? We've had this hilarious conversation <laughs> yeah. about rain. So like I have this this thing which, you know, Eric and I have talked a lot about and I talked about it with my buddy Tim on his podcast around like, I think a, one of the biggest mis- parenting mistakes people make is um, that they teach kids to have an external locus of control by telling them like rain is bad, snow is bad, the weather sucks so we can't go out. And then kids are looking at the world and they're thinking, you know, if, the, if, the, if it's raining... You know, it sucks. If it's sunny, it's good. And therefore, they have an external locus of control. And I think it's crippling, right? And people do this as adults. I, I think this is like just sort of something that parents do blindly without. Um, and of course, you've pushed back in, as surfers, often like in, in the sorrow when it's raining, it's windy, and it messes up your conditions. You can't do what you love. So that's another side of it, which you're, I agree with. Eric and I have had some fun bouncing this it's one like back and forth. waking up and you just know that what you were hoping to do all day long <laughs> is not going to happen. Right. That does tend to affect my... Right, so this is a theme. My mood a little bit. This is a th- and Josh doesn't think it should. Right, this is like a, this is a, a fun theme of banter between the two of us. But like I, I think that um, living on the other side of pain is an interesting principle, right? People who are like someone like yourself, you you push yourself so hard every day, and so much of where you shine is on the other side. So much of what you love is on the other side of dis- the discomfort, which most people bounce off of, right? So if you think about about the training process. Tra- tra- the growth really comes at the point of resistance, at that stretch point, right? But most people, when they approach that state, that, that resistant point, they, they, they go the other way, right? So you can train one yourself to love the other side of that resistance, right? And so you can train it, for example, so let's say I want to train at the, at the theme of living on the other side of pain because I want to teach myself to, to spend as much time as possible at that place of stretch or past stretch where growth really happens so then you can for example take freezing cold showers right and you can you can learn how to through meditative breath work turn the cold into something from something negative into something neutral into something pleasurable right you can um withhold orgasm during sex right this is that's like reaching the point of where your your desire your where male or female you're desiring to release the tension, but then you can maintain that tension, and you can learn to find pleasure in 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 that point of mental resistance, right? You can 
you can cold exposure, hot exposure. Um, in my case, like I just had, I had a tooth I knocked out spearfishing. You know, I had to have a dental, like a thing put in, drilled into my tooth. I did it without without anesthesia. Working on on why because I'm I'm always working on this theme of of mentally or physically living on the other side of pain. There's hundreds of ways. Um, if you're doing resistance work um, with weight with weights, if you're doing cardiovascular work, right? Learning how to love that place where your body is saying um, resistance. Right, so you can you can just do that in the abstract, or you can do it without thinking about it, or you can do it visualizing the theme of training yourself to love that place where you're challenged really, really hard. And if you do that, then what's going to start happening is that that place is going to become one of pleasure. The stretch points can be one of pleasure. So you brought up Anders Ericsson. I think his work is so incredibly important. I love his work. I'd love to talk about it. Deliberate practice is just a way of life for me. Um, where I think I disagree with Ericsson, if there's anywhere, is it's around um, loving deliberate practice. I mean, he's made the argument that. You know, he's observed that, uh, that most of the people that he's interviewed, I think he said all, um, they, don't, they don't love the, the deliberate practice. They, they, they dislike it, but they understand it's part of the growth of being great. I've trained for many, many years at this principle of living on the other side of pain, learning to, to turn what feels uncomfortable or feels that, that like, me- learning to turn that place of mental resistance at the stretch point um, into something that I crave, that I love, that I enjoy. And ultimately, I think that's a big part of why I love deliberate practice. I love training. I love living at that stretch point. And so I've trained at specific manifestations, right, of living on the other side of pain to burn that theme into me. And now that theme is a big part of who I am, which is why that day, you know, where, you know, we had that sneaker North came in and I, I was um, like, that was, that's kind of what I love, right? Being pushed to that, that, that breaking point and operating there. I've trained at that my whole life. I've trained at it from, you know, playing against chess players who would blow smoke in my face and studying chess places where there were loud noise or, or you know, in martial arts for years I was thrown off by it and then I started training it at f- fighting the most dirty opponents I could find. Guys who would aim at my eyes or my neck or my groin or my knees. You know, guys who were dirty players because then you, you train at not being thrown off by those conditions but loving them and, and these are all manifestations of the same theme which I would call living on the side of pain, right? And so that's one example of, of working on manifestations of something to internalize the themes and that then thousands of examples I would never have thought of when they pop up like that earthquake right that you mentioned when I was playing chess in India in a world championship when that happens it's just natural to me like that's what I love right so so for me when I think about deliberate practice or training I think about mapping things in a way that allows me to train at the few to internalize the many right and so your initial question was around whether I would how you see uh, representations. How I see representations relative to decision-making versus technical material. Right. And for me personally, I don't so much see them differently because I connect them thematically. And so I, I would look at where they were connected and I would train at that and I'd visualize the connections. I have this theme that I've developed called firewalking, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, I've trained at visualization for a lot of years and I've done a lot of work with, with in recent years with biofeedback to be able to put myself into different physiological states through intense visualization. And a big part of that is learning how to internalize the lessons from other people's experiences with the same physiological intensities I can learn from my own. So in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, if you look at someone get armbarred, um, you're going to notice you got armbarred. If you get armbarred in the world championship, your arm is being ripped off, your shoulders popping, your elbows popping in, in the most important moment of your life, and you're not going to overextend your arm again. But if you can learn to observe other people's technical errors and visualize yourself in that position and experience the physiological state that they're in when they have it, then you can learn from thousands of experiences that you haven't had 
um, as deeply as you can learn from your own. And that firewalking process is connected to, you know, how I would, would, would connect technical and decision-making um, mental models, for example, as you're bringing up, through, through understanding where they're thematically connected, visualize the connections, um, internalize, put myself into the physiological state that's appropriate for each one in the visualization. And then burn it in, and so so like I work on connect. Like I think if I have any core strength, it is connections. It's understanding where things are connected that other people see them as being separated. And so so my approach is the essence of my approach is to connect them. Where that question comes from is that there are certain things in what I coach from surfing, paddle surfing, that are these skills that are pretty easy to coach. I can put someone in a pool and I can teach correct paddle technique. And that's pretty easy. And you can go and you can drill on that. But the reps needed to learn to read waves, it's just about time and seeing it and building that database. I would assume it's the same thing for a tennis player, being able to know where, how, when the ball hits a racket a certain way, where it's going and what the proper return is. And... The question, I guess, is, and maybe virtual reality is the way, that's the only thing that I've been able to come up with so far that might be the, uh, the solution for this, is how do you get those reps in situation? Is there a faster way to get those reps than, being, than having to play tennis all day long for Absolutely. five years? I think that the, the principle is reduced complexity. Okay. I think that, like, for example, if I were to, I mean, I, honestly, I wouldn't change anything about this last, like, 14 months we've been training together because it's been the most awesome thing. I've had the time of my life. I think my learning curve has been, you know, so much fun. And I'm not sure if it's been steep or not, but I feel like I'm on a great path and I'm, and, and I'm all in. And I'm, but like if I were to think now with what I know and if you and I were to th- like sit down and put our minds together on the idea, like if we were thinking about you, ha- if, if you were not th- taking into consideration the fact that you don't want guys out there surfing big boards and lineups because it's bad for the sport, right? And that's a whole other conversation, right? So if we disentangle that sure. dynamic from, from um, just maximizing the, the growth curve. And if we think about the question of, of, of focusing on, on core technical material in situations of reduced complexity, what I would say is that flat, combining flat water bottom racing with, for example, going out and like what you've done with Damo, your son, right? Who's the most awesome kid I've ever met. I love Damo. He's such an awesome spirit. He's been surfing with us a lot. S- side note. Yeah. The other day, I yeah. explained the firewalking principle to him yeah. a couple months ago. <laughs> and so, so one day I told him that he should, I was meditating. I was like, do you want to meditate with me? He's like, yeah, I'll meditate. Yeah. And so he laid there for 15 minutes and, you know, I was like, so how'd that go, Damo? You know, did you enjoy it? He's like, yeah, I was firewalking Fredo's turns. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Fredo's love a, it. an incredible surfer who lives here, so... Well, that was pretty, like, a little eight-year-old The one problem that Eric has with Damo now is that his favorite thing to do in life is drop in on every one of Eric's waves. Every time Eric pops up and starts paddling, Damo calls him off and drops in on the wave. It's awesome. Got it, Dad. (laughs) Got it, Dad. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So. I I was going to say is what you've done with Damo is that you took him out body surfing. You took him out, watched waves for a long time before he started surfing, right? Right. So I would think that going out, not on a board, not trying to balance, but just watching waves for two, three hours. Right. Right. And like two, three hours a day for four days straight and, and, and defining what the peaks are, showing someone what the, what's going to happen and then have them watch it happen where they're not standing on a board. We're not trying to surf. Right. So like deconstructing the different component parts, doing them one at a time. Right. Bottom racing is one, is one thing. Reading waves is another thing. Um, foot placement is another. Getting to the back of your board is another. 
right? On boards that aren't too, too small initially. And then putting them together on the right on the right board. I think that that would be really interesting if we we're trying just to maximize the growth curve. Sure. And for his learning curve, I was much more concerned about ocean safety, just being comfortable in the water than surfing. We just started surfing a, couple, a month and a half ago. He's yeah. now surfing. Before, the whole goal was just, I wanted him to be solid in the water. So it was different. Um, and you guys came in and with, you know, a lot of water, a lot of water time and skills. But let's but he watched the he reads the water so beautifully now. Yeah, he does now. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. And that was had to do with this actually that that's a that's a cool principle. I don't know how it applies to other things, but um I was pushing him in from the tail of the board and I was in swim fins. So I would swim out the back and I would sit there basically until a wave would come and then when a wave would come to us, I would push him in from the tail of the board. Yeah. And uh, we were in California hanging out with my buddy Colin McPhillips, who is a three-time world longboard champion, uh, one of the best surfers on the planet. The guy is absolutely phenomenal, and he's got four kids who are all incredible surfers. And so I was out with Damo one day, and Colin uh, was out with us, and, and Colin started putting Damo on waves, but he started he's doing it differently. He was telling Damien where to go, and then would paddle behind him, have Damien paddle for the wave, paddle behind him, and then grab him from, Colin would catch the wave behind him, grab him from the butt, and then guide him in. And so I watched this, I was like, oh, this is, this is genius. Because now Damien is doing everything and is just getting a little assistant because his arms weren't strong enough to paddle into the waves. So that's how, the way he reads waves now is 100% because of this method that Colin showed us, hmm. which is having him do all the work, not helping him, not babying him right. in the surfing learning process which is how we approach the water skills. The water skills, he had to do it all by himself. I wouldn't help him. I wouldn't hold his hands. He had to deal with the sets. He had to, I'd be right there with him, hanging out with him um, so that he, couldn't, he wouldn't freak out. Our only rule is you can't cry in the ocean because you, you can't hyperventilate. It's bad for your breath work. You can go on the beach. You can cry all you want. You're not allowed to cry in the ocean because yeah. um, that happened one time. He freaked out and, and the whole thing. But this, uh, the way this approach that Colin had of, of basically having him do everything. And then the transition was he would just be in the right spot and I just wouldn't have to push him anymore. It was right. the exact same thing for him. Right. Which was really neat. What's interesting, you know, what that makes me think of is this, this theme of like finding your own way. Right? I mean, one of the most common mistakes that I see people make, whether you're talking about kids or adults in the learning curve, is trying to do it like someone else does it. Whether it's your dad or your your hero or Michael Jordan, right? Or Tiger Woods or whatever the sport is. There are people who are, who are at the top and you can try to do it like somebody else, but then it's very different from trying to figure out the relationship to the art, which is completely your own. And what's been, I mean, for example, I, Damo has all these funny things he's doing relative to you right now, right? Which is, he's like, he, he, I, I, I'm not going to out him, but he's, like, he's doing certain things relative to watching you and trying to drop in on your waves in a way that he's testing himself, testing you, and he's kind of playing his own games. But he's finding his own way of playing these games, and it's really cool. Um, and I feel like he's finding his own relationship to, to the waves. Like, I, when I watch you tell him something, he doesn't just go do it. He goes and turns around and looks looks for it when he understands it then he goes it's very interesting because he's he's creating he's listening to you he respects you so much i mean i can you can feel it so powerfully but he's also finding his own relationship to the water with that it feels so healthy it's been incredible for a relationship to surf in heavy conditions together where you kind of have to rely on each other it's changed our relationship and actually all right so let's segue into parenting 
And a, a few months ago, I pinged you because we were thinking about homeschooling this year. And after spending a year hanging out with you and some of these other people that are like way smarter than I am, and thinking about, we live in the jungle, there's a great school here, um, but I'm a little unsure about what skill sets our children, uh, I have an eight and a 10 year old, what, what's gonna be relevant for them when you factor in what machines are gonna be able to do. And, and where I landed on this was that a high sense of self-agency, the ability to find what they need to do and know that they can do it, um, and also achieving some level of, um, I don't want to say mastery, but a high level at, at something where they can take time. So we decided to homeschool, and the idea was do our curriculum in about four hours a day, and then each of our kids could spend each time each day focused on a skill. And the idea was that hopefully they'll learn this whole deliberate practice model, this, as you said, I believe it was you said that they're going to set a, a high standard of quality at a young age and how important that is. Um, can you talk to the importance of learning that at a young age and what that did for you? Because you absolutely did that with chess at yeah. a young age and how that kind of sets you on the path that you're on, maybe. I think it's incredible for kids to have a beacon of quality in them, right? And, and of course, then you get many reps of it. If you're if you're training at something intensely from you know when you're when you're a young kid, I mean I I, I think what you're doing with your kids right now is really beautiful. And if I mean my read of their energy is that it's super healthy. They feel so alive. I mean and so inspired. Uh, when I watch Damo in the water, it feels to me like he's he's learning so much about life. And there is something you know, I, I really believe in going deep into something, touching quality. And then like if you if you were trying to learn. A technique in the martial arts. Most people will drill it right-handed, left-handed, right-handed, left-handed. I would drill it very hard, very deeply on one side, then translate that level of quality over. <coughs> Try and learn five techniques. Learn one very deeply, and then you can translate that level of depth over to the other, to the others. Right? If you look at the way like traditional Chinese martial arts is taught, in for example, like something where there's form, whether it's kung fu or like tai chi chuan or whatever, most um, traditional Chinese martial arts teachers will have make someone learn the whole external form which could take months or even years before they'll work on any of the internal the internal principles I would work on one technique with somebody and then have them work on all the internal principles and the body mechanics of that of doing that one thing with quality and then learn everything else with that level of quality and I think that it's 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 really an approach that comes from depth before breadth right almost everyone goes the other way breadth first first right go wide and then deep maybe or just go wide and never go deep which is actually what our cultures are, tend to be moving toward it's just everyone's distracted they're doing a million things at once they're not looking at anything deeply right so uh, on the other hand if you do something with incredible depth you, you develop this feel for quality and you, similar to the feel we were talking about in the beginning here you know that feel for self-expression or that feel for being true to yourself or that feel for loving what you're doing and doing it in a way that you love which is the essence of what i believe in in life um and I, I see you doing that with Demo. And I, I mean, when I think about Jack and Charlie, my boys, I mean, I, I, I love those boys more than I ever dreamed of love. And I'm as devoted to them as I, as, like, I can't even imagine being more devoted. And I, um, that's what I want for them. I want to explore quality and love and have them just feel how beautiful it is to do arts deeply in a way that they are so passionate about. Um, Can you cultivate that passion or is it just there? 
I think you can cultivate it. I think that you can cultivate it. Um, absolutely. I think a big part of that is, is learning who you are as a learner, right? Um, not just racing forward, not just listening to others, not just fitting into the mold of a school or a system. Um, I think one of the most important things that we can do as parents is listen to our children and teach them to listen to themselves, teach them to understand the little idiosyncrasies of their minds and then learn in a way which, which embraces those idiosyncrasies, loves them as opposed to tries to box them away and do it the way someone else did it. Um, I mean, that's the, the single most important thing that I've learned about parenting is the importance of listening with all of my pores wide open to my, my babies. Um, learning about them and teaching, helping them learn about them. It's, it's awesome to watch Jack figure things out. <laughs> His mind's just spinning and with the yeah. keys, like yeah. walks around just seeing what he can figure out, what he can open up. What he, it's, it's, it's beautiful. He has to map everything. When he goes somewhere, he just maps the whole place. It's just not like me at all. Um, Jack and I are really, I mean, we're really different in a lot of ways and it's such an awesome thing being his dad. I love that boy so much. Um, and I'm, I'm learning about him. Um, and Charlie just locks on. Yeah. Charlie taps into, I think Charlie is kind of in a lot of ways more similar to me. Charlie's just seven months old, but he has this way of just zoning in on something and just being on it. That's what Desi um, says. Kinesthetically as well. Yeah. I, um. I, I, but, but going back to your, your question, I do believe that, that we can help children learn how to cultivate the love. I think we can do it in ourselves. <clears throat> I think that similar to how like in the learning process, we can, like we can train ourselves to take on our weaknesses or not. Right? There's something beautiful that happens when we're doing something that we love. And there's... And we're doing something in a way that we love. Like it feels internally aligned, right? And like I can think of the, the parallel that I'm making is, for example, if you, if you think about most people, when a weakness is exposed, they go the other way, right? They don't want to take it on. For me, as a young, as, at a young age, I, you know, I was the top chess player in the country from my age from when I was about seven. And so that meant that all the other kids were kind of gunning for me. And so when a weakness was exposed, when I would make a mistake, you know, you had masters and international masters and grandmasters coaching young kids so grandmasters studying the games of a seven-year-old they can see that they can see the weaknesses very clearly right and so if i revealed a weakness everyone would take advantage of it because they were all gunning for me because i was the top player until i took it on myself until i improved it and so what happened for me as a young age is that um these two parts of my personality i think became somewhat um burned in by fire which is that if i didn't take on a weakness people kept on exploiting it and if I wasn't true to myself as a competitor, my results would flag. And so you put those two things together. And I think it's sort of outside of my conceptual scheme um, to not take on weaknesses, as just as like a breath pattern. And, um, and to not do it in a way that's true to me, because as a competitor, you can't survive if, 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 you're, if you're trying to fit into someone else's mold. Um, like I, so I think that like I see how the external conditions cooperated with it and I trained at it and I see that these two these things are kind of part of me now as an adult in ways sometimes that I don't even see um although I try really hard to see them and that's why I think about it relative to kids in general people in general absolutely we can we can train them we can work on it and a lot of it, a lot of it is, is teaching kids to to be introspective or people to like do what they love as opposed to doing things because of what they feel the world you know what the world expects of them 
in the growth process, and we can relate this to parenting, which is where the idea for this question came from, and but, but to anyone too, and this is something that I try to help people find their way in the water with, and that is pushing your growth edge, but then avoiding setbacks of uh, something going wrong and fear. And, you know, that's something that I've been very careful with, with my kids. And I, you know, going very slowly at the beginning of the, of being exposed to the water, because when something goes wrong and I've seen it happen and I've seen it happen with people that I've coached too. I mean, we had uh, someone recently who came down who had had some bad experiences in the water and I didn't know this. And, um, they were with someone else who was a, was a, a better person and got out in the water the first day and basically started hyperventilating. And so that week for us turned into just working past the fear of the water. And at the end, she surfed the reef that we surf and caught waves out on the reef. And That's if you awesome. would have seen her the first day, and then the, it, was, it was phenomenal. It was, it was probably my favorite coaching moment. Hmm. And it wasn't, had nothing to do with surfing. Yeah. Um, how would you... How do you balance in, in your training and your parenting that dynamic of pushing where you need to push, but then also watching for those potential emotional setbacks? With myself or with, with people or with, with my kids or people I train? I assume that you're pretty hard on yourself. Yeah. Um, so talk to, about people that you train, people that you work with or kids. Yeah. One of the most important things for me there is that I, I've trained myself to love the storm so much that I have to be very careful to be aware of that bias in myself when I work with other people. And we had that situation happen on our first trip. Yeah, we did. Yeah. That was, that was intense. <laughs> Actually, that would be something yeah. interesting to, to kind of talk about. Yeah. Um, we went surfing and from my standpoint, this was the first time that we had worked together. Yeah. And I read your book years before you came down. I was a fan of Tim Ferriss's podcast. Tim was on that trip. Um, and so this was the last day of the trip and we were, I mean, we were getting to know each other, but I was still like, it's just stoked to be hanging out with you guys. If I'm being honest, I was just stoked. And so the, the surf, there was a forecasted big swell and the, um, the winds were blowing really hard. So where we wanted to surf, we couldn't surf. And I'm pretty sure we would have had no issues there, but the winds were blowing hard. So we were relegated to surf this one beach that can be heavy. And we show up and we sat on the beach for about 15 minutes. And I knew the surf was going to be big, but we didn't see any bigger sets. And you were just fired up, like pushing to go surf. And in retrospect, I wouldn't have even put us in that situation. We never would have driven up to the beach if I had seen the swell model and where you guys were and the learning process. But because of how excited you were, because I didn't, I didn't want to let you guys down. I mean, that was like, there was a big component of that in this. Right. Was, I was just stoked. I just wanted you guys to like leave fired up. Right. And... What ended up happening was we started paddling out and the horizon started feathering. When the horizon started feathering, there was a, there's a indicator wave way out the back. And this wave, it only breaks when it's big, when it's like 10 foot faces. And as we're paddling out, as we're making the paddle, I decided to ride a shortboard because I was a little nervous that maybe we'd see some big sets. And I wanted to be able to duck dive in case there were guys out the back. I could get back out. That was my rationale to ride a shortboard that morning just in case it was my safety. And I'm glad I did it because yeah. we needed it. Um, but as we're paddling out, the indicator starts breaking, which means you've got about two minutes before the set hits the beach. And so we got everyone out the back and it went from being waist to chest high, benign conditions to solid 10 foot faces and heavy conditions. And 
Uh, we had three leashes break. It took us about 15, 20 minutes. And thank goodness you were there because I know how comfortable you are in the water. It didn't phase you at all. Actually, in the middle of the chaos, Josh was trying to catch waves, which was pretty funny there. <laughs> <laughs> but we got everybody to the beach and there were big hugs. And, um, but it was such an interesting moment of, <coughs> excuse me, this, the difference, and I wrote about it, the difference in fear and risk because sometimes fear is not present when there's present when there's real risk and right risk isn't present when there's fear and you have to be able to understand and navigate that yeah. um and then also working outside of your bounds um what's your post-mortem on that situation you know david foster wallace gave this great talk at kenyon a ways back it's a, it's a commencement address i think people would love to listen to it or read it and it's called this is water and he built the whole talk around this theme of around fish not being aware of what of water right because that's just that's where they are so they don't they don't they're not aware of it and i think that we live our lives for the most part blind to our biases our constructs like our conceptual scheme or the things that are moving us um that are invisible to us and like the stuff that i was just talking about relative to myself um relative to doing things in a way that's true to me and taking on errors as a way of life, like that's stuff that I've done work on myself to understand that these are things that were sort of programmed into me from a young age and they're just operating, they're moving me and I'm grateful that they're moving me. And, but similar to that, like I've done a lot of training, I think it's in my personality, but I've also done a lot of training in my life as a competitor in these different arts that I've done at loving the storm because like for example, as a, as a chess player, if you're in, like I remember that, like I mentioned it, there was a, this big earthquake in India in a world championship that I was playing and like the earthquake spurred me to insight where broken limbs have spurred me to like the highest level things I've done in the martial arts, which then became baseline for me to you know, work on time, slowing down all the time. Like for me, like I've trained at this so hard and I just love the storm in my, and so the, the, the thing I have to be aware of when there's other people involved is that, right? And so this was a group of buddies and not everyone had that re same relationship to the water that like you and I have, because I haven't been surfing for a long time, but I grew up as a kid I and mean, I've spent a lot of months of my life every, every, um, every year of my life on the water, free diving, spearfishing. Like I, I love water. I'm comfortable in the water. And in that scene, I, I, you can, you know, take the comfort. I think maybe we took for granted the comfort or, or I took for granted the, the sense of comfort in the water. And also the fact that, that when the shit hits the fan, I'm at my happiest in some ways. <laughs> Your eyes light up when it happens. Yeah. Um, and so I think that we, we, um, yeah, that was, I mean, I didn't actually see, think the, the scene was, dangerous but then some mistakes were made which made it dangerous and and then it got then it was intense yeah and it was intense um but you know we also we got the guys in and it was just fine it was okay um yeah i mean my i think that you, you i mean it's interesting so what's my post-mortem my post-mortem is that one of one of the most important things right about is to have your compass on right and I think that in that situation, you and I both turned our compasses off because we were kind of trusting the other one's read, right? Like you, you were trusting my read of my crew, right? On some level, maybe. And I was, and I, and I wasn't looking at the water because I was trusting your read of the water. And so maybe we we're both cutting and putting on blindfolds. And it was also up. really unlucky because you yeah. never sit on the beach for twenty minutes without a set. And right. we did. We waited. Right. So there was some there was some unluck, un unluckiness in there. But it is interesting, like being tapped into your compass or not. Like somehow your relationship to me and to the guy and to this crew disconnected you from your compass on some level. Absolutely. Right. And 
and maybe and maybe me like you being the leader of this group if i if i were there with the guys without someone else taking us out surfing maybe i would have had a heightened sense of danger because i would have been the one in charge of that it's an interesting theme actually when you're tapped yeah. into your compass or not it ties into this thing you know that i i think about a lot relative to the most important question right like i think one of the most important one of the best ways to train decision makers or thinkers or learners or anything is to train them to spend as much time as possible focused on the miq the most important question right and i had this scene which you and i've talked about a lot and i talked about you know with tim on his podcast where i a year ago came crazy close to dying doing this breath hold work um this Wim Hof training which I love it was super intense I was tripping out on the training but then I did it underwater and I didn't realize that I've been freediving my whole life but without doing hypoxic breath work before the freediving and I didn't realize I had this huge technical oversight that it's the carbon dioxide that gives you the urge to breathe and you do this kind of breath work you flush all the carbon dioxide out of your system so you don't have any urge to breathe before you black out so I had shallow water blackout was on the bottom of a pool for three and a half minutes before someone pulled me out um, at the NYU pool with like 50 people in the water and four and three lifeguards or four lifeguards. I mean, it was crazy. I came, I mean, all the doctors said I was, you know, 45 seconds to 60 seconds and I should have been dead. It was three and a half minutes. Um, but I wasn't focused on the MIQ. I wasn't like tapped in, like my compass wasn't focused on the question, which in that situation was carbon dioxide is what gives you the urge to breathe. It's so interesting, right? And so the, my, the essence of how I would post mortem that is that you and I were, were, were disconnected from our compass in some ways because of our relationship to one another in that moment and of course the downward spiral yeah which is the situation was yeah was fine but then bad. people made mistakes and yep. and then it got worse yep right yep. so we got about 15 10 15 minutes here uh one thing that we should talk about and i think this is interesting because i've only gotten this from you but it's such a valid point and that is I'll ping you about books from time to time. And you're always, and these are generally books about coaching, performance, um, something on, on these themes, learning. And you always, uh, you're hesitant, well, not hesitant, but you always uh, urge, caution me to question the sources who's writing the book. Is it coming from someone who's doing it or someone who's studying who's doing it? How do you pick who you learn from? Yeah, this is a hugely important question. And I think that it's honestly something that's really sets what you're doing apart. I mean, it's so awesome what you're doing because you're one of the few people who's out there deconstructing the learning process and deconstructing deliberate practice as a way of life and, you know, high performance lifestyle who's actually living it every day of your life. I mean, you are as tapped into a deliberate practice as a way of life as anyone I know. And you're also deconstructing it and bringing it you know bringing your insights um to the world i think it's super cool because um you know i'm i'm incredibly cautious of what i call the armchair professor right the person or the or what robert Percy calls the philosophologist versus the philosopher or the writer versus the literary critic it's very easy to sit in the sidelines and speak about what you know the man or woman in the arena is doing um but it's very different in the arena and i think that when you're talking about anything past the early levels of the learning process, what, what really, almost all the navigation is about that razor's edge where the greatest insight is right next to the greatest blunder, right? Like I train um, top mental performers today. I mean, I, and you work with brilliant, for example, financial managers, investors who are really at the, at the very peak, the top 0.001% of what they do. And, and they're navigating that razor's edge as a way of life. And so if you work with them and you have not 
been at that level yourself and you're not living a life at that level in that moment yourself, then you're going to be somewhat dogmatic or academic about those razor's edge moments and you won't understand that the exceptions to the rule are actually what what tend to be where the greatest moments of creative inspiration are all about, right? And so I am incredibly cautious about reading anything um, from someone who hasn't walked the talk, right? Now, there are some exceptions, not too many. Um, but I think about conversations I've had with friends of mine who are at the tops of like every different extreme sport, whether you talk about mixed martial arts or you know, professional hockey or basketball or surfing or snowboarding, skiing. I mean, I'm thinking about, like, I tend to spend my life in, I love being with people who are pushing themselves to their limits, right? And what their experience is, is often fundamentally different from what others who write about them um, think it is. And that, dis- and that, that gap is actually the essence of what they're doing, right? And um, so, for example, like I discussed, I discussed, like deliberate practice, I think is a magnificent thing, but, but I haven't seen any academics talk about, like really explore loving deliberate practice. I think that everyone, I mean, everyone I, I know who's just as stoked as possible about learning, like they, they learn to love the training, right? Or a lot of them do, right? But that's, that's, that's or for example, a great, exa- a, great, a great example of this, for example, is around flow. Right, the research around flow, flow states is incredibly interesting. Um, but the highest level of flow that I've experienced involves a reintegration of the conscious mind into the unconscious process. And so you're in that state which is post-consciousness. Um, time slowed down. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing the world in this slow motion. You're present it feels like time is both slow and 20 minutes later, like you, you're going to wake up from a dream. But you're also reintegrating mathematics and reintegrating technical awareness into that flow state, right? That step I haven't heard um, academics integrate into their work, right? But if you live this life, you're going to, you do that. Like chess players do that all the time, right? Surfers do that all the time. And so in, in almost any theme, any example that we would bring up um, where there's academic views of it from people who have just looked at this from the, from the armchair, there are going to be subtle distinctions. And the danger is that people tend to live their lives um, listening to the commentators. Like they watch the NBA and they're listening to the commentators. And one of them might have been a player, but two of them usually haven't been, right? Or one of the, or NFL, everything that. It's, it's, and, and if you get into conversations, if you put like an FBI SWAT team leader, you know, two Navy SEALs, like the best hockey player in history, best surfer, and a bunch of surfers in, in, in a room, what they will talk about is stuff that the academics like get wrong. Because they're talking about that, that razor's edge. And um, I think it's super dangerous for people to, to, um, to be guided so much by people who haven't lived it. You know, and that's again, like, dude, I think it's so incredible what you're doing because if you have someone who's living that lifestyle as like, every day, um, pushing himself to his breaking point every day, and just as tapped into learning as you are, um, and who's interviewing others who are pushing themselves that way, there's a like, there's a like, I thought your interview with Kai Lenny was really interesting because I thought that you brought some things out of Kai. He's been interviewed by a lot of people, right? But you brought some things out of Kai that maybe others haven't. 
because he there, I felt I felt like there was a moment in that interview where there where kind of he realized that you were on his wavelength. That was my own personal read of it that um opened up all these other layers. And um there was like a pause and it opened up. I thought the same thing of when you talked to Jamie Mitchell. I had that feeling as well. I think that's really interesting. I think it's beautiful. Um because the deepest, like what I love in life is that last 0.01% or 0.001% of the learning process, yeah. right? And that's where you are. And talking to people, like, you know, f- from that shared wavelength opens up realms that are just so beautiful, you know? Yeah, that's, that is, and actually my inspiration to do this is inspiration. And talking to people who are like you, um, like Aaron Pearsall, who just recorded for this show, three-time Olympic gold medal winner. That's awesome. Um, it's they see things a little different. You see things a little differently, right? And getting a glimpse into that, I, in no way am anywhere close to to your level, to Aaron's level, whatever. But but I do understand parts of it, and um, it gives me the motivation and the drive to continue doing what I'm doing because it's hard to motivate on a daily basis. Um, I need some external, I need some external motivation. External but you know factors. what you, I don't know. I think you're humble about your level, but we don't have to, we don't have to go there. But I, I, I think that, that when you, when you have, when you're having dialogue with people who are, who are either living in their art at that level or who have been in other arts at that level, there's going to be things that they do that look weird. Right. And that seem like funky, like my buddy Dan, Dan who we've been, we've been laughing so much with Dan and about Dan. I mean, Dan's a brother of mine and like he does things his own way. We're, like it's a, like he, we're out in a point break and he will just go somewhere where there's no break. He just lives his own, he dances to his own tune, but he understands who he is as a learner. And Dan has been world class at several things. He, he's right about himself. <coughs> and when Dan and I used to train Chinese martial arts together, I mean, I would, for example, have to integrate the technical material to tap, to, to reach that place of, of, um, integration into the unconscious and, and creative inspiration. Dan would have to tap that place of creative inspiration in order to then access the technical material. So we'd come from different places to get to the same place and we had to let ourselves do that. And it was crazy frustrating at times, but we approached things like just, so like when you ran into, you've run into me sometimes resistance some certain things. It hasn't been in any way a, a, a lack of trust or respect for you as a coach. I think you're a brilliant coach and you know this art so deeply. It comes from the fact that, that f- I know for me, I need to be attuned to my own like inner rhythm in the way I do things and combine that with an openness to like an external compass in a way that, 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 that vibes with who I am as a human being. Yeah. Cause I have to find and, and, and like we, we know our, you know, it's, it's really interesting to think about and that navigation has to be done differently by every learner. I was actually thinking about this last night. I was thinking about the role of like intelligence in learning because if you think about, most athletic skills, it, unconscious controls it, and it's about drilling correctly to internalize a certain movement. And so I think that IQ acts as the coach. And so you're self-coaching and, and having, being able to, I think about myself in this learning process, and, I, and we, we don't have time to get into it all now, but uh, there's this process that happens. I fall deeply in love with the sport. I get absolutely compulsive. I gobble up as much information as I possibly can. And I have this governing body where I'm pretty good at figuring out what's important and what I should learn. And, but then the learning part of it just comes from time. 
and repetition. And so it's interesting to think about the role of the um, consciousness in in teaching yourself and coaching yourself. Being a good coach, I think, is very important. Or finding a good coach is very important. And they can both kind of get you to the same place. Well, you, you spoke, And those aren't formulated thoughts yet. I was just kind of right. thinking about this last Well, you night. spoke in the beginning of this around, around like the plateau in the learning process, right? I think that one of the things about exceptional learners who are attuned to who they are is they have an understanding consciously or unconsciously of, of where the, of, of the fact that certain paths will, re- will lead to these explosive growth spurts in time. And from the outside, it might look like, like a, they go down a blind alley or they're just smashing into a tree, but internally they know that they're, that they're working in a way that's going to crystallize inside of themselves. Right? I think Dan's a great example of someone who does that. Yeah, he has his own process. Right, and it works and, for him. And it works. It works really well, but yeah. sometimes it looks completely crazy from the outside. Yeah, it's very interesting. And yeah. after the first, the first trip, I was frustrated. Right. But now that I get the process, yeah, yeah. Dan was one of Dan was a world Dan was a world class Aikidoist, then he became a world class Chinese martial artist, and he became a world class um, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu fighter. Now he's taking on paddle surfing. And Dan and I have been fighting each other in the martial arts for like fifteen years. And now surfing together, he's like one of my dearest friends. And he, I mean, it, he, it's very interesting. Um, he knows who he is. I mean, I think that this ties into the, to the theme of, of like mental models, right? If you take investors, there might be an investment which one from the outside would think is objectively good. But it really isn't objectively good. It, it has, to, um, has to fit into one's portfolio of investments in a way that emerges from one's own mental models. Um, or the matrix of one's own mental models. Otherwise, it, 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 um, if it's not a form of self-expression, when you enter volatility, you're not going to know what to do with it. Right? And everything enters volatility. And so, I, I believe that even that this, this theme of self-expression and attunement to oneself, one's own mental models, um, is utterly critical in the learning process. And one of the most dangerous things that, that anyone can do is to try to copy others' mental models. It's better to have none than to copy others. Right. Because then when you know, the storm comes, you're going to not have a compass to navigate it with. Yeah. You've got to start somewhere though. And so you have to pick the most, and, and what I do in paddle surfing is I find, based on maybe body type or based on maybe style, the closest, um, normally pro, to how someone will surf and then that's who I'll use. So for you, you know, Colin and Kalama right now right. are the guys that you should be modeling. I think that was a beautiful call on your part. When you started sending me videos of those guys, it connected with me. I right. love the lines they draw. So you gotta be, you got to be careful about who you pick for right. your models. And then right. you replace that once you get to a certain place with your own. Right. Um, all right. So we're pretty much out of time, but I want to touch on one last thing before we jet. And that is something that um you are world class at but i don't know if if you've really talked about it too much and that is lifestyle and making decisions for lifestyle and i think that uh there's a lot of people who would have your opportunity that wouldn't have been able to create the life that you've created because they wouldn't be able to turn down the opportunities that you get um and so i think that's really cool and i think it's worth noting and um, you know, your, your beacon of happiness for yourself, you know what makes you happy and you understand um, how to position yourself 
Um, and it's, it's really cool to watch because that's something that I've always really tried to do. And I think that, um, you do it incredibly well. Um, can you talk about kind of that role of success and happiness and how you see those just for a couple minutes before we, before we wrap this up? Yeah. I think that your life is, is such, uh, is such a pure expression of this, this whole idea, right? I mean, you live down here doing what you love and your family is so open-minded. I mean, Sarah is so awesome about it such a game person and your kids are so absolutely shining within it i mean you guys are a great example of tapping into the love and then the everything follows right um i mean my mom taught me from when i was really young that i had to follow my heart and um everything would fall into place and so i took on you know my first my heart led me to chess and then led me to chinese martial arts you couldn't have like two like less monetizable sports and in the, or disciplines in the world. I didn't do any, didn't think at all. I've never done anything, you know, for financial reward. I've done it for love. I think my mom is a huge part of that, honestly. And my grandma, um, my dad's mom, um, who's a brilliant abstract expressionist painter and sculptor and incredible intuit, intuition, Stella Waitzkin. Um, and, and, and of course, and my dad as well. I mean, my, I think a huge amount of my upbringing was about doing what I loved. Um, and again, I, I there, what we spoke about before, when I haven't been true to myself, I felt the burn, right? And so I felt the beautiful reward on one side and the burn on the other. But, and then, and I've also felt the burn that comes or the burn in the form of a movement away from happiness that comes um, from becoming externalized in what I do, doing things for publicity or for, from the outside, right? Because I've been forced into the spotlight in some, at some periods in my life in ways that I haven't, that weren't on my own terms, like when the movie came out or, you know, stuff like that. Um, I think life's so short and I, I, um, I'm thinking seriously about moving down here with my, with my family for an extended period of time. Not sure how extended, hopefully very. Um, I've never in my life fallen in love with a discipline that I could not train at every day. And falling in love with paddle surfing and living in New York City has presented a huge challenge. I mean, I jump out to Lido Beach whenever there's surf. I ride my one wheel six to 20 miles a day in the city um, to spend as much time you know, cross-training and visualizing as I can, but I don't have waves. And um, it's been really interesting to observe in myself the sense of, dis- like, the, the, the sense of misalignment that's come from, from A, being in love with a sport that I couldn't cultivate myself, you know, in the way I could, for example, train at jiu-jitsu every day on the mats, right? Or train at chess every day. Or train in push-hands every day. Um, and B, you know, this, this theme of receptivity right now I mean, I don't feel like I want to live my life at this moment in my life in a city where everything is being soaked in through the construct of, of society or, or man. I want to have direct access to nature without, with as few constructs in between. Um, in my, in, in, and so you combine those, everything's screaming at me to move into the jungle. <laughs> and so that's a big part of how that happiness principle is being, being organized now. I mean, you know, for me, learning to say no was one of the most important things in my life. I would have tons of, of incoming and I'd feel guilty about everything I said no to. Um, and I, I, I um, had to learn how to do that. I need to learn that right now. That's, that's I was thinking about this it's this really last hard. week. I have a dear friend um, who taught me a few years ago the art of saying no in a way that can deepen a relationship and not alienate it. He didn't so much teach me how to do it as he, he opened my mind to the fact that it was possible and then it just sort of happened with that energy 
like being un- like understood. And it's amazing how that works. With people, like if you, I, I've learned that if you say no to people in a way that's deeply authentic, if they are people who should be in your life, then they'll, it'll deepen the relationship. And if they shouldn't be, then that's, then you did the right thing anyway. Um, but we have to simplify. I mean, subtraction is one of the most important things we can do to, to go deep. You can't talk, you can't really go deep into things if you have too much on your plate at once. And so saying no as a, as a way of life, I think is a huge part of, of, um, living a life as deeply as we possibly can and as beautifully as we possibly can, which is, you know, as big a commitment as I have for me and for my, my family, who I love so much. Well, thank you for doing this. And on that note, you need to take some kids surfing, don't you? I got to take Jack surfing. He's waiting. He's stoked. And we only have an hour left before the sun goes down. So yes, it's going to be awesome. Man, I appreciate it. This was wonderful. Brother, it's been awesome. And I, I so deeply appreciate everything about you and your friendship and coaching. And I love you, man. You're, you're a hell of a beautiful human being. Dude, likewise. You, it was actually interesting that you, I met you at a time when I had just sold the company. I had this small business down here. And I just sold it. And I was kind of a lost soul at the time. Like I was super passionate about paddle surfing. I was like, you know, but there wasn't much past that. And so it's really been helpful over the last year when you're firing me off stuff. It's basically I got like kind of like a minor, like a weight skin MBA over the last <laughs> year of like being, Josh just has this tendency of like firing me off these things to study at the right time. That's awesome. And it's, dude, it's, it's been really ins- it's inspirational for the last year. So I don't know if, uh, yeah. We're just getting started, man. We got so many waves to surf. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) Hawaii, yes. That's the next step. Six weeks, baby. All right, dude. Thank you. Thank you, man. Let's go surfing. Thank you guys for tuning in. A couple notes real quick before we jump off. Uh, Huge thanks to my loving, supporting, beautiful family, Sarah, Damien, and Kemper. Uh, Those guys, it's our whole family. And at the beginning of the intro, I wanted to include everybody. And to my good friend, Garrett Dutton G-Love, for letting us use one of my favorite songs of his, uh, the things that I used to do for the the music, for the show. Uh, Also, a note on profanity. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm always driving around listening to them with kids. And I think it's a shame that brilliant people use profanity and it limits the audience to an older crowd. And I'm tired of explaining to my kids the idea of context and language and how not all words are the same. And so I'm going to do my best to limit profanity on the show so that you can listen to this with your kids as you drive around, should you choose to. I think that there is a lot of wisdom um, from shows that I really enjoy and um, I think it's too bad that that there has to be a caveat to that. So I'm going to do my best to limit profanity. Um, if you'd like to know more about what I have done in the past, check out progressionproject.com. Uh, you'll find all of the archives of my paddle surfing explorations there. And that, does, that hasn't stopped because I've started this show. I continue to do that. I continue to host the Paddleboo podcast and uh, journal about the sport of paddle surfing. So, all right, guys, it has been beautiful. Stay tuned for the next episodes. We've got Aaron Pearsall, Garrett Dutton, and Anders Erickson coming up. You guys have a lovely day.